Hello and welcome to CAD Speaker Series Podcast. This week, Irma Frasheri, Research Fellow at CAD, will be interviewing Dr. Johannes Hahn, European Commissioner for Neighborhood Policy and Enlargement Negotiations. Dr. Hahn just delivered a talk on the scope of the EU's neighborhood policies and about the challenges and opportunities surrounding European integration. Welcome on board, Dr. Hahn. I have a few questions on the work that you do and challenges that the European Union faces with regard to its neighbors. I'll start off by asking you to give our listeners some context. Could you tell us a bit about the scope of the work done by the European Commission on neighborhood policy and enlargement negotiations? How do you engage with government leaders across the region? Well, first, it's important to say which area is covered by neighborhood. Neighborhood in the east means uh, Belarus, Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, uh, Armenia, and Belarus, and um, Azerbaijan. And in the south, it's from Syria to Morocco, and um, enlargement uh, concerns uh, Turkey and the countries in the western Balkan. We have only two years ago revised our neighborhood policy, and uh, there are some key elements uh, which are now, so to say, the fundamentals of our cooperation with our neighborhood. And this is, uh, first, it's about <clears throat> a tailor-made uh, relationship. Uh, there are different interests. We have our interests, uh, uh, neighbors have interests, and we have simply to match it. It's about ownership, so it's not that we are imposing something, but it's really ownership, and this means also partnership. And finally, we try to focus on certain areas of cooperation in order to be more effective. And in that respect, we have uh, different kinds of uh, cooperation. For instance, those who are uh, looking uh, very, let's say, um, intensive to the European Union and try to have a very close cooperation with these countries. And we are talking here about Ukraine, Moldova, and Georgia, we have uh, an association agreement and a deep and comprehensive free trade agreement, which means a very close uh, so to say, alignment with uh, European standards and therefore access to the European market. With others, we have a more tailor-made uh, contractual agreement, just recently uh, negotiated with Armenia, and the same is with Azerbaijan. And uh, we have started negotiations in the south with Tunisia, on such a deep and free trade, uh, uh, comprehensive and, uh, DCFTA. And Morocco is also in the pipeline. And uh, our aim is really to see what are the needs of our neighbors, what are our interests, and to find a tailor-made solution for that. You've been very busy, it seems like. What would you consider to be the Commission's biggest achievements in the past three years? If I look at the whole Commission, I would say really to overcome the economic crisis. Uh, uh, today, we can say that all 28 member states are growing, so they are back to growth. This is why President Juncker recently in his speech to the Union said uh, we are now having again wind in our sails. The second is uh, that we have uh, weathered down the uh, migration crisis. Not completely, but uh, I think we have uh, introduced a lot of uh, necessary measures. For instance, we have created a functioning uh, external border management. We have deployed more than 1,500 people which are supporting uh, 
border control units of uh, our member states. We have uh, initiated some other measures uh, dealing with this issue. And uh, finally, we have a clear, so to say, perspective what should be done in the future uh, so that we are really now looking uh, much more proactive uh, into the next couple of years. Fantastic. You have had an uneasy task leading the European Commission on its enlargement efforts at a time when the sentiment in Europe is against newcomers. What can you tell us about the meaning of membership in the European Union? Where are the borders of Europe? What does it mean to become a member state in the European Union? What do you look for? Well, first I have to say I'm not uh, waking up in the morning looking at the map and uh, identifying those who are not yet members and then knocking at the doors and wouldn't you like to join us? So it's uh, the other way around. Uh, there is a, a strong, so to say, attractiveness of uh, this uh, soft power European Union. And um, indeed, there might be some, so to say, reluctance amongst citizens in the European Union to have new members. This is why I'm always saying to the candidate countries, we have to work together to improve, for instance, the economic and uh, rule of law development of these countries, so that finally, at the moment when these countries can become members of the Union, these countries are perceived by the citizens of the member states as a new asset, as a gain, and not as a burden. I see. So, in other words, that they have become more European or more mainstream. They have to transfer the European fundamentals in their national GNA, and this is a process. That's why I prefer to, to, to talk about the process and not only about negotiations, right. because negotiations is a more technical term. And second, indeed, and this is even more in the interest of the countries themselves, they have to improve the economic uh, performance. Already today, uh, if you look at uh, the countries in the Western Balkan, the growth rate is the double of the growth rate in the European Union. And this also, I think they haven't taped all the potentials. And this, for instance, why I have proposed, and it was endorsed at uh, the last uh, West Balkan summit in Dresden in July this year, the creation of a regional economic area, uh, because this would create an economic area of 20 million people. A, a market of 20 million people, which is attractive for international companies, and it will definitely create a boost. Mm -hmm. And for instance, we have seen when we started negotiations with Serbia, this has triggered international investments in Serbia, not only by European countries, but also by international ones, who feel much more reassured that uh, Serbia is on a good path. I see. So in this context, usually the argument is that the European Union holds the view that the integration process brings about prosperity and democratization for neighboring countries. And so in this light, what has been your experience with dealing with the Western Balkans, especially in light of the enlargement freeze or fatigue? Has the European Union been able to increase linkages between Western Balkans and the rest of the European Union? And what are some of the challenges that you are facing in that region? Well, I think, for instance, uh, the setup of the so-called Berlin process in 2014, aiming at um, regional cooperation amongst the six West Balkan countries, but also, so to say, their connection or reconnection to the European Union has already uh, triggered a lot of dynamism. 
We had the first groundbreaking events uh, about uh, the construction of railways, highways, but also energy uh, supply chains. And uh, now we are creating this uh, regional economic area. So there is a new momentum in the enlargement uh, process with the Western Balkan, acknowledged uh, by the European leaders recently, as already mentioned, in Trieste, but also in the speech of President Juncker um, last week in Strasbourg. So on the level of uh, the European politicians and leaders, the situation is crystal clear. There was even, so to say, a timeline announced by President Juncker 2025. But now it's also up to the candidate countries uh, to, to, so to say, to use this momentum and to speed up, so to say, their internal processes. And of course, we are facing still a lot of uh, challenges. I, I prefer to speak about challenges and not problems in the region. Corruption is one. The independent judiciary is another one. But in all these cases, we are making progress. And economic development is another one. We are still facing unprecedented high unemployment rate, in particular amongst young people. And I'm particularly concerned about uh, the, if you like, brain drain, in particular of young people. And this is something which has a sustainable negative impact for the future of these countries. And that's why I think this uh, societal and economic development is so important in order to convince own citizens to move back and to contribute to the further development of their countries. Absolutely. So at the time when a belt of instability has coagulated around the European Union's periphery, starting north from Ukraine and going down south to Turkey, Syria, and the southern Mediterranean coast, either as a result of war, civil unrest, or economic downturns, how is the European Union responding to them? Well, that's why we have, uh, as I already said, uh, uh, revised our neighborhood policy really to address, for instance, root causes of such uh, events and developments. And more in generally, more in general, I think it's important to really work on a narrowing of the welfare level between the European Union and its uh, neighboring countries. If there is a welfare gap of three, four, five times, of course it creates pressure, it creates an att attractiveness which we cannot 100% uh, uh, meet. And therefore, I think it's in the interest of everybody, of us, the Europeans, but also of uh, politicians and uh, responsible people in the neighboring countries to work on this um, reduction of this kind of uh, gap to address this and to find solutions. And uh, if this is the case, uh, I think uh, we can also overcome a lot of uh, societal unrest and conflicts. Great. In your talk today, you emphasized how much European Union relies on its appeal, norm, values, and how much it uses that gravity to transform other countries. However, for instance, European Union has been dealing with Turkey for over 40 years. And yet Turkey has backpedaled on its democratic commitments. How do you explain that? Is there a European future for Turkey? Well, um, we have to acknowledge that even within the European Union, we have member states with very different, uh, so to say, experiences and tradition in democratic life. We have countries with uh, century-long uh, democratic structures where there's a parliament for almost 1,000 years 
and we have very new democracies. And um, you cannot impose democracy from one day to the other. It, it's something you have uh, to learn and uh, to deal with it. And uh, the same applies for a society uh, like in Turkey. And there are back and, and forth. I think we have to be, we have to stay committed to the support of uh, the Turkish society. When you are looking into the result of the last referendum, almost 50% of the population had a different opinion than the ruling party. So again, I believe in the European interest. It's clear that the best for us is to have neighbors who share the same values, principles, interests, and perspectives. Absolutely. And now a question about the future of Europe and in particular and particularly about the Commission's agenda for the next five years. So one can claim that the European integration can be described as a process, a project and a product. How do you see the European integration evolving in the next five years? What are its challenges and what would or could be the agenda for the next European Commission starting in 2019? Well, uh, first I would like to uh, remember that um, the European Union as a whole exists longer than half of its uh, member states, or at least uh, they are only younger a democracy uh, than the European Union exists. So the European Union is not uh, a creation of uh, the last 10 or 20 years. It, uh, we just celebrated uh, 60 years and uh, institutions already before uh, preparing the European Union exists for uh, almost uh, 70 years. And uh, we have to adapt also as a union to, uh, so to say, uh, current and future challenges. I believe, for instance, uh, migration will be the, the uh, topic of the 21st century on a global scale. That's why it was good that f last year at the margin of the UN General Assembly for the first time we had a global conference on this issue, climate change will be a top issue. What we discussed today, for instance, in the, so to say, vicinity of Europe, uh, even within Europe, uh, water uh, resources will be an issue. Energy efficiency, stability, democracy, education. Uh, I think we have to work on a change, how we educate, how we train our young uh, people. So there is a permanent work in progress. And I think the uh, European Union has uh, proven its uh, ability to adapt itself. Uh, maybe we are not always uh, the fastest ones, but once we have uh, taken decisions, uh, they are, so to say, really not only lasting, but uh, in a way sustainable and effective, because as it takes time to convince people and to, to agree with people, uh, you have finally a much higher ownership because uh, people feel it's something on their own. And so the identification with the project is much higher. The preparatory time might be longer, but finally the effect is, is, is a much uh, better one. And therefore, it's always worth to invest in this kind of uh, democratic uh, participation process, which is sometimes cumbersome, but I think the result is uh, always a better one compared to if something is dictated by one people, mm. by I one see. person. I see. Usually whenever I teach courses or seminars on European integration, the first class has always to do with 
how do you unpack this concept of an ever closer union among peoples of Europe? Like, what does it mean? Is that phrase which is captured in the preamble to the you know, Total Realm Treaty? And the question has been a lot over the, you know, the last 70 years, what does an ever closer union among peoples of Europe mean? How can we understand that? Well, uh, first I would uh, refer to the principle of subsidiarity. And uh, this means that uh, decisions should be taken at the level where it is appropriate. And not everything has to be decided on a European level. This is, for instance, an ongoing discussion we have. Mm -hmm. And uh, just uh, this year uh, we presented a discussion paper with five different options how the future uh, structure of the European Union could look like. And this has triggered a discussion process. Uh, I think it's simply important that uh, not only those who are, so to say, official officials of the European Union identifying themselves with the European project, but that every politician, everybody in the public sphere is uh, dealing and communicating about the European Union, understanding that we are all the European Union and it's not about a few thousand people in Brussels, but we are all the European Union and um, decisions are taken in the European Parliament and by the heads of states have an impact effect to everybody and therefore everybody should also contribute in, in a process. And this is something, of course, we have to learn because uh, the Euro European project is unique in human history because it's for the first time that quasi bottom-up a supranational structure has been created. And also here Simply, we, we have to learn our lessons, and I'm very confident that um, there's a further development and we are able to meet future challenges. Fantastic. And lastly, you had an eventful day here. You had a conversation with faculty and students at the Center for European Studies. Then you had a lecture here at the Kennedy School. What are your, your impressions out of these events? What did you take out of them? First, I'm deeply impressed about the structure of uh, American universities. Second, I'm also impressed about the quality of uh, questions and the knowledge uh, people have, in particular about Europe. There is always a kind of perception that uh, Americans don't know anything about uh, uh, Europe. And I think it's important that uh, there are opportunities and I hope that uh, more Europeans, more European officials use the opportunity if uh, being invited, for instance, here to Harvard to give uh, speeches, lectures, etc., participate in discussions because um, we are sharing the same sea, the same ocean, and to a certain extent we, we have not only a common history, but we have, if you like, a common future. And the common future is a, a free and uh, democratic uh, society where everybody can pursue his own interest because I think we believe on both sides of the ocean that this is the best uh, ingredient to have a good life and to have stable, robust democracies. Terrific. Thank you very much, Dr. Hahn. It was a pleasure doing this interview with you, and I look forward to seeing you again. Thank you very much, and it was a pleasure for me too. If you want to learn more about CID and our events, please visit cid.harvard.edu.